We're the Paris family missionaries to the island of Tana in the nation of Vanuatu. And uh, I'm Sam. This is my beautiful wife, Lisa. And this is the big man, Liam. Then we've got Kylie and Ari and the little man here, Terry. We are in Tana, Vanuatu. Tana is actually one of the southernmost islands of the island nation of Vanuatu. Tana is the most densely populated island in Vanuatu, but if you were to fly over it or look at it on Google, Google Maps, it looks just like a dense jungle. And that's because people are living in these pockets all over the place in villages. And Vanuatu as a whole is a country that still has many of its customs that have been around for hundreds if not thousands of years still intact. If you go back in history, you look at the ultimate sacrifice of several first missionaries that came and were actually cannibalized. Uh, in fact, when you mention the name missionary, there's respect here. And the reason for that is, is the chiefs recognized that the way for you to get here was actually paved with, with blood, with the ultimate sacrifice. Now we feel like God has brought us here at absolutely the right time. Right now, like never before, we're seeing areas that have been previously closed, opening the doors to areas where they've never even allowed someone to come in and pray. We both have this vision for this church that is not only just growing to a place where it's sustainable here on its own, but that it's actually able to send out missionaries to other islands, missionaries to other countries. Our prayer is that when we go someplace, not only are we able to establish relationships, not only are we able to connect and plan for the future, but that people see and experience the presence of God and the power of God firsthand. Every single morning we, we pray, Lord, this is our schedule, but change it. Yeah. Do whatever you want, yeah. send us wherever you want, we're available. We've always felt when God called us that God was truly calling our whole family to yeah. this. And we live here as a family, we invest in the community as a family, and we really believe that God is using our family to open up these, these doors. You know, sometimes it's not really about, it's not about the service, it's not about preaching, it's about the relationships and it's about the reality of just opening door and sharing God's love with people. We're super excited for the doors that God has already opened and the doors that are going to continue to be open. Uh, we know that God has a plan and we know that God called us here at the exact right time. We just have this sense of excitement. We know that the best is yet to come uh, and we're just excited about obeying God and trusting Him every day uh, and moving ahead into the plan that He has for Tana. Good morning. Good morning. I'm really excited to be with you guys today. Uh, and I want to apologize because my whole family is not here. We're usually a team. We've usually got the whole crew. Uh, but it's just me and my oldest daughter today. My wife came down with a fever yesterday morning, but she has already texted me about 1,500 times this morning saying, hey, make sure everybody knows I'm praying for them. I love them and appreciate them. And, I, and she always reminds me because this is usually what she does. We want to say thank you. You guys have partnered with us uh, since we went over, before we went over, and we truly, truly appreciate it. Uh, we know many of you have been praying for us, uh, and you're going to hear some stories today, and I want you to understand that these stories are not our stories. These are our stories. 
You see, God has called us as a church to reach the world, and we are your hands extended. Amen? See, God's called some people to go across the world, some people across the street, some people next door. We've all got a purpose and a plan, and we're your people that he's called to go to Vanuatu. So thank you for believing in what God's called us to do. And I know today that as you hear these testimonies, your faith is going to increase. And my prayer is that you leave today understanding that we serve the God who saves today, who is alive today, and that every promise that you read in God's word is true in your life today. Amen? Not just some of them, but all of them. Well, I'm going to take you back a little bit in our history. In 2009, we were called into missions. I was minding my own business. Uh, I was running my own business, too, <laughs> and working for corporate America. In fact, my schedule was such I would work 50 to 60 hours a day, uh, a week, not a day, it felt like that, but a week for corporate America, come home, kiss my wife, have dinner, run back out the door, and run my own business. I had three different workshops in the evenings that I was running in three different cities, get back home at midnight, Go to sleep, get back up in the morning, do it all over again. And I wasn't running my life like that because I didn't want to see my family. No, I had a great plan. And my plan involved God too. I was going to honor God because I knew we were supposed to be in ministry, so I was going to take care of the money thing. I was going to get that figured out and then fund our own ministry. Well, one day in 2009, I came home. I'd worked all day. My wife, we had our second child. It was Kylie. Kylie had been born at that time. And uh, she was there, and she was holding Kylie, and she'd had a rough day. Uh, and I had dinner, kissed my wife, and was getting ready to go back outside. And as the door closed behind me, I saw the expression on my wife's face. And I knew that the choices I was making were now affecting my relationship with my wife and would eventually start to affect my relationship with my children. And as the door swung closed behind me and I walked down the steps to my truck, I was angry. I wasn't angry at my wife. And honestly, I wasn't even angry at myself. I was angry at God. Because that entire time I'd been praying, God, bless me. God, direct me. God, I need your help. God, bless me every step of this way. But never once had I said, God, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. And so I got home that night, and I needed one of those God moments. I got my Bible out. I got home. It was about 12.15 that night, and I got my Bible out. And I, I know this has happened to you if you've got your opened your Bible and just earnestly sought after God. I needed something to jump out. I needed it to, to come alive. I needed to feel that God inspired someone 2,000 years ago to write something so I could read it that night. Well, it didn't happen. <laughs> and at about 2 o'clock in the morning, I closed my Bible because I'd been flipping through it for the last two hours, and it felt like I was looking at a blank book. And finally, I just stood up, and I looked up, and I said, God, I surrender. Whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. And the weight of my pride, of my ego, of my plans fell off my shoulders and God filled me with his peace. I felt like I was going to float through the ceiling. I went running into the bedroom where my wife was sleeping. And if, how, many, how many people have, have, have children? Okay? You don't wake up a nursing mother in the middle of the night unless the house is on fire. I went in and I woke her up and God's grace was with me, praise God. And uh, she looked at me and she said, what's going on? I said, uh, you'll never guess what happened. I just surrendered to full-time ministry. We're both supposed to be in full-time ministry. And she started crying and she looked at me and she looked at me and she said, I've known for quite a while. I've just been waiting for God to tell you. So this started a season of, of seeking God together. And over the next few weeks, we earnestly sought God together 
for the first time about our purpose. And we said, God, what do you want us to do? And God filled us with missions, and that was 2009. So now I'm going to fast forward because we went through this long season of preparation. I had to go back to school, get licensed, get ordained in the, in, through, through the ministry, and get involved. So we went through this season of preparation, and finally in 2015, we landed in Vanuatu. And when we landed in Vanuatu, Vanuatu is an island nation of 83 different islands. Our leadership said, hey, before you go down to Tana, we want you to live in one of the northern islands for a few months where we have a few missionaries, where they've got good running water, where they've got good electricity, and where they have a few stores. Because Tana is still very tribal. We've got some huts that they consider stores, but really when, they, when we say that, they're selling flour and rice and sugar and sometimes uh, tuna fish. So, uh, you know, they wanted us to acclimate a little bit before we went down. So about six months into this time, my mentor, who's been in the islands for about 17 years at this point, he came to me and said, hey, Sam, I've got an opportunity to go down to Tana. And Tana is the island that we live on. It's the southernmost island in the chain. And he said, hey, I've got an opportunity to go to Tana. I want you to come with me. We're going to try and find a house for you guys to live in, and I'm going to introduce you to some of the people I know down there. I said, okay, this will be great. Should I bring my family? He says, no, 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 it's just probably going to be a meet and greet. Uh, and uh, you'll be fine. And he'd been preparing me all along. He said, I want you to know Tana's, Tana's a little different. It's kind of like stepping back in time. Stuff's done there the way it's been done for hundreds of years. So I packed my bags, and we got on this plane, and we landed on the main island, which is known as Ifate, and then got on a smaller plane and went farther down over to the top of several other islands and landed in the island of Tana. And from the time we landed, I realized things were different. Number one... The terminal is about the size of your platform. Uh, and I walk into the terminal, half the roof is missing because the last cyclone that came through in 2014 ripped it off. And so I'm walking into the terminal, there's a big hole in the wall over here and you hear this noise and all of a sudden your luggage starts shooting through it. It's the advanced baggage claim. There's a gentleman standing by the plane and he's just throwing stuff in. And so uh, I saw my suitcase, I went over and I picked it up and I turned around and there was this big man standing there with his hand outstretched and a smile on his face. So I went over and I grabbed his hand. I said, hello? He said, are you missionary Sam? I said, yes. And then tears started to fall down his face. He said, since 2009, we've been praying every day and asking God to send us a missionary. And now you're here. Immediately, I was overwhelmed because that's when God placed the call of missions in our lives and specifically Vanuatu in the island of Tana. The next thing is he took me outside and we loaded the baggage into the back of this truck. And do you know how if a truck's worn out a little bit, the truck bed, when you put any weight in it, it kind of separates from the cab? Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Okay, this, this truck bed was so much so that when you put any weight in it, it I mean, it was, like, it was like a dump truck, you know. And uh, he said, uh, okay, you and I getting back because the driver's in front and, and his brother-in-law is sitting in front. So we climb in the back of the truck bed and we'll hold on to the the roll bar. And at first I think, man, this truck's a little worn out. I look around and I realize this is probably the nicest truck here. It was one of 10 trucks on the island at that time. And so then we start down the main road in Tana. And the, it, the road has actually been improved a bit since then. But the main road in Tana at this time had potholes so deep in it that you would go down in the pothole. And my head, as I'm standing in the back of the truck bed, would become level with the road. And so we're driving down the main road, and you know how you can feel if someone's pointing at you? You know, you just have that feeling like someone's pointing at you? Well, Pastor, Pastor Stephen, who was the gentleman that had his hand outstretched, was standing in back with me, and he's standing there with his hand on the roll bar, and he's got his hand over his head, and he's pointing at me. 
And as we pass these villages, I can hear the kids there yelling, Missionary, Missionary, Emmy, stop, come. The missionary's coming, the missionary's coming. You see, on an island of 45,000 people, when a new person shows up, especially a foreigner, it's pretty big news. So that was my first, my first day there. The second day, we took a tour of different places. They were showing me kind of the island and the lay of the land. They showed me the volcano that's been erupting every day for over 600 years and got to see the ash and pretty soon found out I was going to see that volcanic ash every day. Uh, and then they took me around and they were trying to find a place for us to live. They showed us a few places. All the places they showed us had uh, crushed coral floor. And I said, do you guys have anything with cement? And they said, yeah, 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 we do. So they took me to this next village, and they said, missionary, this house right here, and they're pointing at this little house in front of me made of cinder blocks with a metal corrugated roof. They said, this house is the only house that didn't fall over in the cyclone in 2014 on this side of the island. I said, we'll take it. And so I went inside, and this house is 483 square feet, has two little bedrooms, no kitchen, no bathroom. Uh, and so I knew we were going to have to do a little bit of work to add those things to it. Uh, but that became our house that we lived for this first term. So that was the first two days, and I'm, I was sitting in my hut that night, kind of relaxing, thinking, thank you, Lord. You've stretched me. You've taken me outside of my comfort zone. I'm ready to go get my family and, and get, a, get started on this, this, uh, this adventure. How many people understand God likes to stretch you a lot? Yeah? When you're outside, and I want to encourage you, if you're uncomfortable today in what you're doing, and you're uncomfortable in your situation, praise God for it. Because when we're uncomfortable, we have to be dependent upon our Heavenly Father. Amen? When we're stretched, when we're outside of what we're used to, we have to be dependent upon our Heavenly Father. And that means that's the greatest opportunity that you could be in. Well, I was about to get even more uncomfortable. There came a knock at the door, and I opened it. And he said, missionary. I said, yes. He says, we want to have service tonight in about 30 minutes, and we want you to preach. I thought, okay, okay. Now, as a minister, you need to be ready. Now, I'm feeling the pressure a little bit because I just met this guy who's, who's a very influential pastor there. And he said, you know, we've been praying for you since 2009. And, you know, I want to make a good impression. I'm still learning the tribal language. I mean, excuse me, the trade language. I haven't even started the tribal language at this point. And so I throw together a sermon as quickly as I can in this trade language. And they whisk me away to an open field, which is where service was that night. It was a big open field. We had woven mats on the ground. The first two rows, which were the seats of honor were cinder blocks with big pieces of bamboo on top. Then up front, the platform was a big pile of crushed coral. They'd taken a palm tree, cut it in half, and slapped a piece of plywood on top, and that was the pulpit. We had the worship service, and about 10 minutes later, I was called up to the front. And after about 15, 20 minutes, I finished my first sermon in the language of Bishlama, and I sat down, covered in sweat, number one, because it was hot, but number two, because I was extremely nervous, and took another deep breath, praising God, saying, okay, God, you stretched me. I'm excited. I'm ready to go get my family. Well, I was about to get stretched again. If I was sitting where pastor was sitting, my mentor is sitting right over here where this gentleman's sitting. We're both on the front row. And nothing faces this guy. He's been in and out of the islands for about 17 years. He's just kind of seen it all. Well, as I look over at him, someone comes up and taps him on the shoulder. And as they whisper in his ear, I can see the color visibly draining from his face. So I'm kind of waiting on the edge of my chair for an explanation. And as the guy walks away, he looks over at me and he says, hey, get over here. So I come over. I said, yeah? He said, well, uh, there was a paramount chief here tonight. And I've got a picture of the paramount chief. You can go ahead and pull that up. He says, there's a paramount chief here tonight. And he heard what you said. And he liked it. 
Well, I looked back at, at my mentor and I said, oh, okay, so, so what's the problem? He says, well, he wants to give you a gift. And as he says that, there's two young men over here. They're dragging a pig that they've got tied up, and they're pulling it in. The pig's screaming. A guy comes from over here with a big club. Pretty soon, the pig's not screaming. And then these women comes in, and they're carrying rolls of cloth, and they pile it up next to the pig. And then uh, this other group of women come, and they're carrying armfuls of potatoes, and they pile it up. Pretty soon, we've got this huge mound in front. And I realize this is the gift. I also understand that this is a shame culture. And to not accept a gift or be able to take the gift could potentially shame someone. So I'm thinking that that is my mentor's concern. And so I'm, I look over him and I said, hey, no, it's going to be okay. I know we can't take the dead pig on the plane, but, you know, we'll figure it out. And he says, no, you don't get it. Look over there. And I look over to the side, and I see this little girl. She's about two and a half years old, and they're putting feathers in her hair, and they're painting her face. And pretty soon this lady's behind me, and she's trying to put a feather in my hair, and she's extremely frustrated and perplexed because my hair will not hold the feather. Pretty soon I had to show her just to put it behind my ear. Then my mentor, he points over at the, the girl and he says, that's the chief's youngest daughter. I said, okay. Well, he's giving her to you. At which I said, uh, what, what? What do you mean? He said, he's expecting you to adopt her. And tomorrow that when we leave on the plane, she's going to be coming with us. So then I look back at my mentor and I said, uh, what do I do? He looks back and he says, I have no idea. <laughs> so then I said, okay, we need to pray. He says, yeah, we do. So we pray and it's a real quick prayer. Uh, and he says, okay, I've got a friend who's been in and out of the islands. Let me see if they've heard of this happening before and see if we've got any options. So he runs off to try and find reception to make a phone call. In the meantime, the, the guys that were sitting on the front row, the chief and uh, his, his elders have taken off their clothes. They've put in this custom wrap on. They're getting their faces painted and torches are getting lit. I mean, things are getting real. And all I can think is, Pastor, I've, I've just, uh, God called me to this place. I've prepared to be here for over six years. And now I'm here and this is the first time I'm here and I'm going to make some weird international incident and never be allowed back. Well, my mentor comes running back. He says, okay, I called my friend. We've got three options other than just saying no. He says, you should understand if you say no, it really is not a good environment for you to come back to. It just won't be safe. I said, yeah, I, I put that together. He says, well, the first option is you can just adopt her. She'll, you'll have to go through the adoption with the government, then, of course, with our government. I said, I'm not necessarily opposed to that, but I'm not ready to make that decision. It's all happening so fast. You know, Lisa's not even here. And he says, yeah, I, I understand. I said, well, what's the second option? He says, well, the second option is you can arrange a marriage with one of your sons. <laughs> to which I said, uh, okay, uh, I'm not ready to do that. What's the third option? He says, well, the third option is if there's another chief here, we allow the ceremony to take place. He says, you need to understand once the ceremony takes place, you will always be viewed, you and your wife will always be viewed as her mother and her father. And her biological parents will now be referred to as aunt and uncle. You will be responsible for her in every sense of the word. When a man comes to purchase her, because on this island you still purchase your wife, you actually purchase her with pigs. So if you're married, look at your wife and say, you're worth a lot of pigs. Uh, and he says, so when they come to purchase your, her, your daughter, they would actually have to come to you and pay the bride price. He says, so you need to understand what comes along with this. He says, so you allow the ceremony to go take place, and if there's another chief present, after the ceremony's finished, 
you approach that chief and ask him if he's willing to perform a ceremony. And now what you're giving her back, not for them to, to raise her like to adopt her, but to actually raise her as if they're raising somebody else's daughter on your behalf. I said, well, let's go with that option. Long story short, they accepted. And not only did they accept, but it turns out I, I actually honored them. Uh, because they view us as people that have a lot of resources that they don't have and is a, have a lifestyle that they don't have. And what I said in front of everybody else with my actions was, is you can raise her better than I can. And so immediately God knitted our families together. Number one, and I want to show you this next picture, we have a beautiful daughter. Her name is Amy. And you can pull that next picture up and you can see her standing with my wife. She's six and a half years old today and she's a very special part of our family. And um, how many people understand God knows what you need more than you do? Yes, he does. And sometimes when things happen, we don't realize, you know, God's perspective is so much greater than ours. We don't realize why God is doing certain things. Number one, I believe God has a special plan for Amy's life. And she's now a part of our lives and we're excited to help position her for what God has in store for her. But number two, God knew something about our ministry that we didn't. What a shock. <laughs> well, about a year into our ministry, my wife looked at me and she said, you know, it's time to take the ministry from the coast because that's where we've been spending most of our time. She says, it's time to get into the interior. In the interior in Tana, you've got these little feeder roads and our truck will only go so far because the roads end. And then you've got to put your backpack on and start trekking. On my first trek, as I was going into a community, these inner communities are known as custom communities. And that is a word that they've adapted from the English language. And custom means that they live the way they've lived for hundreds of years. In fact, the women will be wearing a skirt like you see my wife in that picture wearing, except that's the only thing they'll be wearing. And the men will be wearing something called a nambus, which is just a small covering on the front, nothing else. They'll make fire by rubbing sticks together still, and they're just living off the land. They're living the way they have for hundreds and hundreds of years. And these custom tribes are fiercely resistant to three things. Any outside medicine, because they have a shaman that practices medicine. Any outside education, because they have an oral education to educate their children. And any outside religion, because they believe in animism and they also worship their ancestors. In these tribes, they have a center meeting place known as the Nakamo. And I'll never forget the first time I came into a custom community, I walked to the edge of the Nakamo. And we'll pull up this next picture and you'll see what the Nakamo looks like or the edge of the Nakamo. And as I got to the edge of it, these young men got in front of me. And there was a guy holding a bow. There was another guy holding uh, a club. And they made it very apparent that I was not allowed to come into this space. Well, not wanting to create any sort of conflict, I kind of took a step back, but did not turn around. I'm praying and trying to figure out how I'm going to get into this area, because this is where all the men are. I need to meet them, and I just am trusting God for this situation. Well, back by the fire, and that the fire is, is where that little log is right now, is where that fire would be. I'm standing on the other side of this open area. There was a chief sitting there, and he looked around, and he could see these young guys talking agitatedly in front of me. And he peered around and he saw my face and he says, hey, boys, get out of the way. That's Paramount Chief Tom's brother. That's Amy's father. He's one of us. The next thing he did is he went over and he grabbed my hand. He took me and set me down by the fire. And he stood up and in a loud voice, he says, this man is one of our family. He has a voice in this community. You see, God did in an instant what it could have taken a lifetime to accomplish. 
The next thing that happened as we started talking and I expressed that I was a missionary, he looked at the ground and he drew a cross on the ground. He said, that represents your faith, right? I said, well, yes, that's a cross. It does. He crossed it out and he said, it's already here, so don't talk about it. And in an indirect communication culture, that's as direct as if someone says in America, hey, if you do that, I'm going to shoot you. And they mean it. So I understood my role in this community. God had given me an open door, so I knew he was going to open it all the way. But I knew that my role at this time was just relationship. So every time I'd trek in, it was pretty much the same thing. They'd want to show me the pigs because that's like showing someone your garage, you know, your cars or your bank account. And so they'd show me the pigs. Then we'd, we'd go see the waterfall, see the garden. And we'd come back and end up by the fire and just eat some coconuts, and I'd leave. I'd always bring a gift for the chief because... Anytime you disturb the community, you have to bring a gift for the chief. It's only respectful. So I'd bring, sometimes I'd bring in a loaf of bread my wife made. Sometimes I'd bring in some flowers. Sometimes I'd bring in a bag of rice. And every time I'd come back to the house, my wife would say, well, how'd it go? Any open doors yet? I said, no. She said, okay, well, let's pray. And we continue to pray. Well, this community has a shaman in this community. And if you look at the, at the picture here, the shaman is the gentleman with the hair that's orange and kind of sticking out to the sides. And this shaman has the ability, they believe, to change the weather. He has these magic stones, and he puts these leaves under it, and he burns it. And when the smoke goes up, it disperses the rain, or it pulls the rain to make it rain. Well, every time I'd come into this community, the shaman would never talk to me. He would just talk loudly so that I knew that he had status and so that I could hear him. Well, we'd gone into a season of drought. And on my last visit, I could hear the shaman. He was talking about how the stones weren't working, and he was talking loudly about it. And on an island that has no water supply, no faucets to turn on, and a very shallow water table, when you got no rain, that's a desperate situation. In fact, now we'd gone about six months, and they were sending their children with buckets almost two days away to pick up water. And they'd, by the time they made it back to the village, it was half full of muddy water. And I remember trekking into the village this day. I had two pastors with me, Pastor Stephen and Pastor Simeon. And as I trekked in this day, it was pretty desperate. Everyone was in serious need of water. And the, the visit went the same. I saw the, the garden. I saw the pigs. And then we went and ended sitting by the fire. As I turned to go, I gave the chief his gift, which the, the, on this day was a bag of rice. And the shaman was sitting there as well, but didn't look at me and didn't say anything to me. And I just nodded to the chief. He thanked me for coming and said he looked forward to my next visit. Well, I turned around to walk away, and then a voice yelled out after me, and I recognized it as the shaman's voice. And he said, hey, wait. And I turned around, and the shaman was standing there. He said, I want you to bless our village. The word he said was, I want you to speak words over our village. I looked at the two pastors with me, and I said, okay, I'll be happy to. I just bowed my head. I said, God, bless this village. Show them your power. Amen. The two pastors and I shook hands once again with the chief. We turned to go down the center trail that we knew would take us down to the truck and then back to our village. We'd taken about five steps, and the sky just split apart, and it started to pour. The shaman started jumping up and down and screaming. He says, that man, he pulled the rain. <laughs> and I said, no, my God. Hold the rain. And you see, what happened that day is a paradigm shift started in this village. They would introduce me before as, Manya, Hemi, one man, we got good fella talk talk. 
This is a man who has good stories. And now it changed to this is a man who is connected to a God who can make it rain. Fast forward several months, we now have a church plant. Five minutes walking distance from that picture. You can go to the next slide here. And this church plant, this is, now we talk about church plant. This is the first church plant in history, first church in history that these communities have had access to. On our last service there, which was Palm Sunday of, of the year before, um, we had 86 children that came to the service. When we gave an altar call at the end, a bunch of the kids came forward. They were still resistant for the adults to come. They said, yeah, you can, you can talk to our kids, but we're not sending our adults. Well, when I gave the altar call, I could see in the back of the jungle, you could see the banana trees moving. And some mamas came walking forward and committed their lives to Christ. I just got a text message a few weeks ago on Easter. Pastor Simeon, he's the, the pastor in the blue shirt behind me. Uh, he, uh, he pastors this church. He said they baptized three adults on Easter Sunday. So praise God. God is doing an amazing work there. Amen? Amen. How many people are planners? How many people like to plan? Let's be honest, okay? How many people make checklists for the week? How many people make checklists for the day? Okay, okay. I'm guilty. I like to check that box. I like to be at the end of the day and say, okay, I got that done, got this done. And my background is business, so you got to have a plan. you got to have a strategy to make it happen. Well, I moved to Vanuatu and specifically to Tana. And I had that thought process with me. Now, you need to understand there's something I didn't tell you about my background. I'm a missionary kid, and I grew up in Japan. The culture in Japan is such that time is absolutely the utmost importance, so much so that every, the train I would ride to school in the morning, the, between the hours of, it starts at about 7.30 and goes to about 10 in the morning, there's guys there with these blue jackets, brass buttons, and white gloves, and there's one at every train door. Do you know what their job is? It's to push you onto the train. Because if the train leaves late, 10 seconds, the driver gets fined because he's disrespecting everybody else's schedule. And, I mean, you get crammed onto the train, you're just completely smashed up against people. And that's the type of culture I grew up in where time is of the utmost importance. Then God took me to a place where time is a fluid concept. If someone says, hey, pastor, I'll be at your house on Wednesday. Next Wednesday comes and goes. Next Wednesday comes and goes. Two months go by. A Wednesday morning. Two months from now, they show up at 4.30 in the morning because it's cooler when it's dark. And they're yelling at your gate, hey, pastor, hey, missionary. And they're right on time. Okay, and as long if you tell someone you're going to do something and you do it before you die, promise fulfilled. Okay, that's the culture that God moved me to. So <laughs> I still was holding tight to my time culture when we first moved to Tana. And, in fact, what we would do on the weekends, we'd get in our truck as a family, we'd go as far as the road would take us into the interior, and then we'd just hike out and meet a community. It wasn't hard. As soon as they saw our skin color and my children's hair, there was immediate connection, and we just built relationships that way and trusted God to provide open doors. Well, one such day, we'd been in the area of Middlebush, and we were coming back home. We were coming down through the center of Tana. And I knew that uh, this road would take us about an hour and a half, two hours at the most to get back to our village. And this, not because of distance, but because of the condition of the road. So we're in four-wheel drive and first and second gear the entire way. And just, it's, it's brutal. And I had my iPad with me and I had my schedule. I knew that if I got home by the time I was planning, I'd have time for this. I'd start the project. I'd start this thing. I was, I was ready. Well, about 10 minutes into the drive, my wife says, hey, stop the car. I said, yeah, okay. 
And she says, well, there's somebody, they're selling ginger root and some green onions over here. Someone had just set up a little bamboo table and we're selling some stuff. So I pull over, she gets out of the car. Well, I get my iPad out because I think, okay, this is a great opportunity to check my schedule, check my plan and plan for my plan. So I've got it out and I'm continuing to plan. Well, as I look up from my iPad, I see the people she's talking to. And the Holy Spirit says, you need to give them a ride. I look back down at my schedule because I don't recognize their face. And I know that it will take hours because they don't live in our village. And I know that on my schedule, giving someone a ride is not there. <laughs> and so I'm struggling with this. My wife comes back to the car. She opens the back door. She puts her stuff in the back seat. And she leans forward and she says, I think we're supposed to give them a ride. I said, yeah, I know. And I love my wife. Without waiting for me, she, she went over to them and invited them to come into the truck. Uh, and they got in and they were excited. Number one, it's a status symbol to ride in a truck. There's not very many trucks in Tana. And number two, we saved them about two days of walking. So they got in the truck. And after about 30 minutes, I got my attitude sorted out. And I found out where they were living. And I, I, I knew uh, it was going to take us at least four additional hours to the trip we had planned to get them home. But I knew God had a reason for it. And so I was praising God for it. And by the time we dropped him off, we'd become pretty good friends. We were laughing about things. And I thought, okay, it's just a great opportunity to serve him and some seed sown. We'll just see what God does with it. Well, as they were getting out of the car, the man turned to look to me and he said, I want you to meet my chief. I said, oh, okay. So I turned to shut my car off. He said, oh, no, no, not, not, not today. Come next Wednesday. I said, okay, I could do that. So the following Wednesday, I got up early because... Not because I knew the chief was going to be waiting for me early, but you never know how long it's going to take to find the chief or to connect. I just wanted to allow enough time in the day. Well, as I pulled up to where I dropped them off, it was early in the morning. The man that I dropped off was sitting by a smoldering fire. I realized he'd been waiting for a while. And before I could shut the truck off, he got in the truck. And I looked at him and greeted him. He said, okay, let's go meet my chief. I said, yeah, let's do it. He said, well... Um, it's not here. He says, this, this really isn't my village. I just build my hut here and plant my garden here because there's more rain here. I said, oh, okay. Well, well where is your village? He says, my village is where you picked me up the other day. <laughs> I said, oh, okay. <laughs> so put it in drive and <laughs> off we went. And uh, we spent the rest of the morning and part of the afternoon driving to where I'd picked him up. We went down this small feeder road and pretty soon it ended. And he said, okay, it's a small walk from here. And in the islands, if somebody ever tells you, it's a small walk, it's at least an hour. So I put my backpack on, and we started trekking. After about an hour and 45 minutes, I came to the largest custom community that I've ever seen. As I walked into the center of this, this village, the Nakamal, like where these people are standing right here, the Nakamal was as every bit as big as this entire sanctuary. It was massive. It has these huge trees, banyan trees, with these branches that extend 40, 50, 60 feet, almost all the way across this meeting space. And as we walk into this space, I can see this, this elderly man with white hair and a big smile on his face approaching me. I re realize pretty soon that this is the chief, and his hand is, out, is, is outstretched. I grab his hand, and he's got a smile on his face, and he starts to walk with me, and he's holding my hand. In this culture, if a man holds another man's hand, it's a sign of respect. It's a way of showing publicly this man is on my level. The only thing I, I say to the chief is, my name is Sam, and I'm a missionary. And you need to understand, that's the only thing 
that I said. That's the only background this chief has on me. Then the chief is walking through the the Nakama with me, and he says, for hundreds of years, he points to the ground, he says, for hundreds of years, we've worshipped our ancestors here. He says, do you see that tree in that corner? I said, yes. He says, my father's spirit lives in that one. He says, do you see that tree over there? I said, yes. He says, my grandfather's spirit lives in that one. Do you see that tree back there? I said, yes. He says, the evil spirits live in that one. I said, okay. He says, I want you to meet someone. And he walks me over to the edge of the Nakama where there's a small fire and there's these two logs and we both sit down to wait. In our culture, if there's a pause in a conversation for even 10, 15 seconds, it becomes a bit awkward. In this culture, if there's a pause for five, 10 minutes, it's not awkward. Now, it still feels awkward for me, but it's not awkward for them. And we just sat there quietly waiting. After about seven minutes, this village elder comes walking out. He sits across the fire from me and as he sits down, He looks at my face, and his face breaks out into a big smile. Then he starts to talk. He says, last night, I had a dream. In my dream, I saw a fountain come up in the middle of our Nakamo. And out of that fountain, there were these streams that were flowing down to each of our village huts. And when they touched the huts, they brought life. He said, when I saw your face today, I knew that that fountain was to come through something you were going to bring us. Please remember, the only reason I'm sitting here is because my schedule was interrupted and the only thing that I've said is my name is Sam and I'm a missionary. Then the chief grabbed my hand and he said, I want to show you something. He took me to the edge of the Nakamo. He says, do you see that tree? Do you see that Natafo tree? Do you see that Nabanga? He marked off four corners. He said, since I became chief, I knew something had to change. And now hearing this, I believe that change is to come, to come through you. He says, I want you to have this land. Will you come here and stand up a house, a church, to your God so we can learn what you know? When I could find my words, I said, yes, absolutely. I want you to know that God has gone before you. He has prepared the way. There might even be some people here today that says, I believe what you're saying, and I believe what pastor tells me that God's with us. But you know what? I just don't feel him. I'm just not experiencing God's presence right now. I want to tell you something. Our Heavenly Father is a gentleman. Sometimes we're so focused on our plan, our agenda, our challenges, our problems, that we forget that if we just take a step back, that's going to allow him to get in front. When he gets in front... He fills us with his peace, and our problems, our burdens, they become light. And you're going to find out that God's gone in front of you. He's prepared the way so that you can succeed at what he's called you to do. God will move heaven and earth to accomplish what he's called you to do. All you have to do is get out of the way and let him get in front and surrender. I've got one more story I'm going to close with, and this story has a little video that you're going to see. And this comes from... Uh, a trek where I, uh, and any time I trek, I always take a local pastor with me. You see, our, our, go- our job as a missionary is not to grow the mission. Our job is to grow the church. And so I always take a local pastor with me because we expect God to open doors. And when he does, I want to be able to connect that local pastor and say, hey, here's someone that lives within a day's walking distance or two days walking distance, however far they are. And they're going to be able to come in and, and, and check on you at least once a month. And on this trek, I had a pastor with me, Pastor David Yo. 
And Pastor David is from the side of the island known as White Sands Tana. And I've got a picture of Pastor David and me that you guys are going to see. And this side of the island is called White Sands. Now I want you to know, this is the side of the island that the volcano is on. There's absolutely no white sand over there. <laughs> it's all black. In fact, the ash on that side of the island falls so heavy, it falls like snow. Sometimes it falls like a muddy rain. Sometimes it falls like a mist. And you can always feel the rumble of the volcano in your chest as you're trekking around. Well, we had set out on a trek, and you're going to see in this video that God had done amazing things. In fact, on the first day, we trekked into a community where they were, they were all there. No, no one was at the huts, and we were kind of alarmed. And then we found them in the Nakamal. A boy had died the night before, and they'd had a funeral. It was a very heavy atmosphere. There was even a shaman there. And once again, God used a shaman, and the shaman said, will you pray for us? And I prayed, and God, God's presence showed up. And the chief, the whole atmosphere changed. The chief said, you're welcome back anytime to share any talk that you want. So we had open door after open door, and now we were on the fourth day of the trek, and I was satisfied. <laughs> I was ready to get home. God had done so many good things. I was tired of sleeping by the fire. It's hot season, and hot season in the islands, it's hot like Missouri is hot, but there's no break, there's no escape, and the humidity's always in the 90s. In fact, on this day, I had my backpack on and my water bottle's right here. And I reached to grab my water bottle and I missed it. And I kind of hit the outside of my backpack. And as I did, all this water came out. It's like touching a washcloth. And I thought, oh, shoot, there's a hole in my water bottle. And that's, that's a dangerous situation during hot season. So I grabbed my water bottle and looked at it. And no, there's no hole. Then I looked at my backpack. I had sweated through the entire contents of my backpack to the back. I know that's disgusting. And my wife doesn't like it when I share that. But you need to understand how I felt. This was the fourth day. We were coming down the mountain. I knew that if we got to cross the river, we'd be back by our truck and we could be home. Well, as we were heading down this mountain, we crossed that river. And I'd already told Pastor David what my plan was. And he was in agreement. He was ready to be home too. And uh, we crossed that river. And as we crossed that river, I saw this small trail coming down out of the mountain we had just come out of. Didn't think anything of it until my foot hit the intersection. And the Holy Spirit said, one more hill. Well, sometimes we don't want to surrender right away. I was really uncomfortable. <laughs> I looked at Pastor David and I said, I was looking for a way out. I said, do you know where this trail goes? He says, no, missionary, I've, I've never been up that trail. I said, well, I think we're supposed to go up it. He says, okay, I'm with you. And we started back up into the mountain. And I want you to see this video to see how God had gone before us and prepared the way.
Praise God. Um, what, that, what that video doesn't tell you is you may have seen an injury on that man's leg. Uh, in fact, when I, when I walked into the hut and I sat down and my eyes adjusted to the darkness, I, I could see the bones sticking out of his skin. And at first I thought, oh, man, we're going to have to find help for this guy. And then as I looked closer, I could see how the, the skin had closed around the bone already. And they had taken uh, a file and where they they doled down the filed down the sharp edges. And as we're sitting there, this man he says, "Last night, I heard a voice in my dream." And he said, "I immediately knew it was the voice of God." And he said, two men that belong to me will come to your hut tomorrow." He said, "So I knew you were coming." Next thing he did is he grabbed his leg and he says, "When my brother and I were young, and the age he described was about." 14 or 15, he said, we were standing on the edge of a cliff and we had to jump. The word he used, the tribal word he used was, was fire. I believe there was a fire. He said, when we jumped, my brother cried out to the ancestors and I cried out to the God above. He said, my brother died immediately and I lived. I promised the God that saved me that if any man that ever belongs to him would ever come to my village, I would ask him to stand up a house, a church to that God so that, he, so that my village might know the God that saves. You need to know the age of the man when I met him, he was in his 70s. That means he'd been waiting for over 50 years, 50 years for one person who belonged to the God who saves to show up to his, to his village. Thank you for believing in missions. Thank you for partnering with us. As we go back, our greatest need is actually pastors. We're excited about starting a Bible training center for pastors. We're going to raise up the next generation of pastors. We need your prayers. We need your support. We don't take this lightly. Pastor, thank you so much for the opportunity to share. I want to encourage you today to step out in faith and ask God to interrupt you. As you do, you're going to find that he's gone before you and he has prepared the way. Thank you so much.